Testing, testing. One, two, three, 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 three. We look forward as we stay mindful of our backs on Backflip Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe. That's Z-O or Z-O to the cinema fans overseas. Taking a look back at the movies of yesteryear. It's the 81st episode. Thank you for downloading or streaming. We really appreciate it. The reason we started this show was to strengthen the bond between my son, Zach, and me. We watched movies that I loved when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And normally I would tell you what Zach thought about the classic movies that we just watched. But we didn't watch this one. It was just just me. Just just so. Just me. I, I only, I'm the only one to watch this movie this time because of scheduling conflicts. So you're just going to get my take on this episode. If you like what you're about to hear, please take time out of your busy schedule and offer a tiny bit of support by giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can also share our show on social media. Speaking of which, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. You can find the details in the show notes. So let's move along to the opening credits. I want to take this time to give a shout out to Made for TV Movie Podcast. As you might know, I had the co-host Beth on our 79th episode where we talked about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Made for TV Movie Podcast is one of my favorite shows because I love listening to Beth and her co-host Kirsten talk about the TV movies that we grew up watching in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Beth and Kirsten watch these movies so that you don't have to. And the way they talk about the movies is an absolute blast. So check out their show, Made for TV Movie Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so here we are to opening credits. And the movie that I watched yesterday was The Quick and the Dead from uh, the, the 1995 production. And because I'm aware that there's there's more than one movie named The Quick and the Dead, but I am talking about the one that I saw in 1995, and I truly love that movie. So a little bit about The Quick and the Dead. A female gunfighter returns to a frontier town where a dueling tournament is held, which she enters in an effort to avenge her father's death. That's from IMDb. And that's like the the short, the short of it. That is that is the long and the short of it. There, there are some other stuff that happens, but that's that is the crux of the matter. So this movie was released February tenth, nineteen ninety five, produced by TriStar Pictures, Japan Satellite Broadcasting, and Indie Prod Company Production. It grossed over eighteen million dollars in the U.S. and Canada on a thirty-two million dollar budget. It had middling at best reviews. It's around. It's around 50-50 with, with a lot of people. It, it wasn't extremely popular. And it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know why. I don't know why. It, it basically totally bombed at the box office. And it was, uh, and not a lot, it was, the critics weren't kind to it. Let's put it that way. And the audience weren't kind to it either. So I, I don't get it. It, it. This was a blast to watch for me. So this movie was starring Sharon Stone as the lady also known as Ellen. She's been in Basic Instinct, Casino, and Total Recall. Gene Hackman, he plays John Herod, and 
We've seen him in a bunch of movies, and a few that I have listed here include Runaway Jury, Behind Enemy Lines, and Enemy of the State. Russell Crowe, he played Court. Most recently, we've seen him in Thor, Love and Thunder. He's also been in The Nice Guys and Man of Steel. Leonardo DiCaprio, he plays Fee Howard. I'm sorry, he plays Fee Herod, but he is better known as The Kid. He's been in Inception, Titanic, and The Departed, as many as a bunch of other films. Now, you notice that the name that I've listed, these these are Academy Award winners, These, but some of them, like uh, Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio, this is like very early in their career, so virtually unknown. And so uh, we we get to see them in in the early stages, and uh, later on they would go on to do great things. So to continue on this esteemed list, we have Tobin Bell. He plays Dog Kelly. He's been in Saw, Mississippi Burn, uh, Mississippi Burning, and The Firm. And I think uh, he's included high on the um, on the call list because he's like a classic. Uh, He's 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 a classic Western actor. He's been in a lot of Westerns back in the day. We also have Roberts Blossom. He played Doc Wallace. He's been in Escape from Alcatraz, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Home Alone. Kevin Conway played Eugene Dredd. He's been in Gettysburg, Invincible, and Mercury Rising. One of my favorite actors, Keith David, plays Sergeant Clay Cantrell. How do you spell that? Correctly. He's been in The Princess and the Frog, Armageddon, and Pitch Black. This is one of my favorite roles for Lance Henriksen. He plays Ace Hanlon, and you've also seen him in Hard Target, Aliens, and Powder. Pat Hingle plays Horace the Bartender. You've seen him, you've seen him in Batman, Hang Him High, and Shaft. Gary Sinise, he plays the Marshal. He's also been in Forrest Gump, Of Mice and Men, and Apollo 13. Mark Boone Jr. is barely recognizable as Scars. You've also seen him in Memento, 30 Days of Night, and Batman Begins. Olivia Burnett plays Katie. He, she's been in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Hard Promises. Faye Masterson, she plays Maddie Silk. And you've seen her in Eyes Wide, Eyes Wide Shut and Fifty Shades Freed. Raynor Sh- oh, goodness gracious, this is one of those names, isn't it? It's got a bunch of letters and consonants that are arranged in such a way that I am not precisely sure how it's pronounced. And I didn't think to go online to figure out how to pronounce it. I'm going to give it the old, the old college try. Raynor Sheen. Uh, apologies if I said it wrong. He plays Charlie Moonlight. He's also been in Spartacus and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And lastly, we have Jonathan Gill. He plays Spotted Horse. He's been in Shining Blood and Geronimo. Those are the only other movies that he's been in. And uh, But I particularly like him in this role. Because he goes around telling anyone who would dare to listen to him that spotted horse cannot be killed by a bullet. 
This movie was directed by Sam Raimi. Ah, we love him, don't we? We love him because he directed Spider-Man, The Evil Dead, and one of my favorite Sam Raimi films, Dark Man. The movie was written by Simon Moore. And this movie is actually, uh, actually, the movie Traffic was based on a miniseries that he did called Traffic. So traf- the movie Traffic with a C is based on his miniseries Traffic with a K. And he also wrote Under Suspicion. He, but he really hasn't written a lot of work. At least not a lot of movie work. The music is by Alan Silvestri. He has 138 credits to his name. Included with those credits are just completed Pinocchio. He just finished scoring for Pinocchio. He's also done Castaway. And among the many movies he's done is The Long Kiss Goodnight. One of the movies that we did earlier on this show. So that's it for the opening credits. And if you're enjoying the show, please remember that you can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, face masks, jerseys, and more at our refurbished website, backlickcinema.com slash shop and you can check weekly for newly designs eventually there'll be new designs i promise you and you can also go to tpublic.com or teespring.com to find more stuff so let's go on to talk about our favorite parts Like so many uh, movies that I love that uh, I talk about on the show, it's this is one of those movies where I kind of like every bit of this movie. There are certain scenes that stand out, and I try to pick those scenes out when I do the show and tell you how I feel about those scenes. But to me, this I'm not trying to say that this is a perfect movie. I'm sure it has its problems, but I just get such a profound sense of joy when I watch this movie. When When I watch other movies... It's not like I'm comparing it to this, those movies to this one, but I'm I'm looking for that feeling, that that feeling of joy I get when I watch uh, movies, and this is one of those movies that give me that sense of joy just watching the whole thing. It goes like from the acting, the wardrobe, the the setting, everything is just it's just nice, and I don't even watch westerns all that much, but this one just it it captures me so right away. Uh, like when. Sharon Stone comes in and uh, you notice how even though she's dressed as a man, she doesn't look like a man. Like I've seen this old photo of Calamity Jane, which is what I feel like a lot of women gunfighters that we see in the movies. I think they're kind of based off of Calamity Jane. But if you see a picture of the real life Calamity Jane, she looks like a dude, right? She looks like she doesn't even look like a woman in dude's clothing. She kind of looks like a dude and all of her uh, clothes and her gear is like, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just huge. Like it's, it, the, the, her suit is like enveloping her, but Sharon Stone is apparently wearing very, a very form fitting outfit. So it, 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 it accentuates her as a woman. So I think that's, that's why she she's dressed like a man, but she doesn't look like a man. So that's one of the things that you notice when you first see her. And um, and she takes no non she's no nonsense. She demands respect. So like when she first goes into the saloon, and 
the bartender without looking at her to see what she wants. He just hears her voice. Uh, she. I, I don't even know he he hears her voice. Maybe he just knows by her footfalls that she's a woman. And as soon as he, as she steps in, he says, "Whore's next door," because there's the saloon, and then there's the the uh brothel and the brothel light. So they have the brothel next door. So he, the first thing out of his mouth to her is, "Whore's next door," and uh, Ellen, the the lady as she's known in the movie, she's known as the lady. She says, say that again. And he says, whores next door. And it's like, at this, like when they're having this conversation, he has his back turned to her. He's standing on a stool, working on a sign or a light or something. And so when she says, say that again, and he says, whores next door, she kicks the stool from under him and he falls down (laughs) and he, he gives her instant respect because she's not she's there to get a room. She's a visitor. She's there to get a room at a hotel. She's not there to um she's she wasn't there for work or anything like that. So she demands respect. Or or another time when um she's outside her saloon, she's just minding her business, smoking her cigarette, and this dude he comes up to her and looks at her and he says you're pretty. And she says to him, you're, you're not. And that was funny. And truth be told, he wasn't pretty. Uh, the person she was talking to was Scar and Scar was played by, um, the unrecognizable. Let me see if I can find his name, Mark Boone Jr. And I didn't recognize him until I, I saw his name in the credits and I put two, two and two together. So it's not that because he was all scarred up that I didn't recognize him. I think the main reason was that he's much younger in this movie than I think I usually, no, even, I'm not sure. I think he's younger in this movie than I usually see him. And, um, but most importantly, it's because he's cut all of his hair off. Like when you usually see, um, when you usually see this man, this actor, Mark Boone Jr., he usually has a bunch of hair. Like he's 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 flowing. He's got flo- these flowing locks and this, you know, this huge beard. Like it's that's his look. And in this movie, it's like none of it is there. It's all shorn. He's a shorn sheep. He's 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 not fresh phrase. He's got stubble on it on his head and he's got a stubbly beard. But it's like when you cut off all your hair, you look completely different. So, um, and his characters are tripped. That's another thing I like about this movie. All of the the characters there is like everybody, everybody is gathered there. Like I mentioned earlier, for a gunfight, and people just start showing up for this gunfight, and they're they're very strong characters. Like you don't really know much of their backstories, but it's like every everybody is distinctly uh uh is a distinct person. You know, they're not just like blank slates. They're <laughs> and. And so I, I just I just love the characters in in this group. So besides Sharon Stone, who's basically doing uh, a kind of Clint Eastwood version of Sharon Stone, and you have Gene Hackman basically playing Gene Hackman, a villain. It's the villain persona that he usually puts on in Western. So you pretty much see the same persona in Unforgiven, and a lot of the personality. And I think Unforgiven is a later movie, but a lot of the personality uh, from the character in John Herod that he plays in this movie is very similar in Unforgiven. Like, for example, the 
they they have the same kind of background where they were outlaws and then they go to take over a town. And that seems to be a thing with Western that I'm just now starting to notice. Like I, I, I didn't realize that this was a Western trope, but basically the reason that, well, you have a, a crooked like mayor or sheriff or a uh, town leader or whatever. And that's, and they're crooked because they used to be outlaws and either they established a town or they took over somebody else's town or something like that. I don't know how these things happen. It's never explained in Westerns, but uh, now he's a, he's a outlaw turned uh, sheriff of this town. And he, it was he who establishes the, the quick draw event that draws all of these gunfighters. And he's giving away a massive amount of money to the winner of this event. And uh, I have in the trivia, how much money that he was offering, but um, his, uh, as far as his personality. So he's, uh, in Unforgiven, he hated people who were dishonest or who, who claimed things that were not true. He, he hated the people who, who exaggerated. So in Unforgiven, there was this dude that was, uh, telling stories about how he was this, um, how he, all of his heroic deeds, right? So he was having this biographer writing, this bunch of heroic deeds going down and the Gene Hackman sheriff character hated this dude because he was telling these stories. And then, uh, he basically outed him as a fraud and, and beat him up and kicked him out of town. And something like that happens in the quick of the dead. So they're one of my favorite characters in this movie is, uh, Lance Henriksen's character. He, uh, was Ace Hanlon. He's basically, uh, he's telling tales. He's loud mouth. He's boisterous. He's proud. He's like one of those types of guys. And he's basically telling, it's not like he's not skilled. He has skill, but he's telling, he's exaggerating the things that he can do. He, he talks about people that he killed that he didn't kill. He's going around trying to impress people with these tales of his exploits and um john harrod the gene hackman character hates that and the main reason he hates that is because the people that ace claimed to have killed were actually killed by john harrod john harrod killed those people and this guy is going around telling people that that he killed them so um that that's when john harrod uh at the uh quick draw event has to make an example of him. Now, the rules of this event, at least initially, was is that uh, you sign up, you go to the bar, and you sign up for the event, and then after you sign up, you uh, you some anybody could challenge anybody. So you go, you challenge somebody, and then you meet at an appointed time by the 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 MC of the event, which happened to be the bartender, and uh, the bartender is played by Pat Hingle. So that's Pat Hingle played Horace, the bartender. So, and so at the appointed time, you just, there's this uh, clock tower. And when the clock tower hits the appointed time, like exactly on a dot, that is the signal for the gunfighters to draw their guns and fire. Initially, it is fire and the person who falls down is is defeated and the person who's still standing, whoever is standing is the winner of that quick draw event. So if, if the person who gets shot and lives, you know, it's the, the contest is over. Um, but then later on, Herod changes the rules and he changes it to, uh, till death. 
So it becomes a gunfight to the death. So it's not enough to shoot somebody down. You have to kill that person. Therefore, because the Gene Hackman character, John Harrod, hates the uh, Lance Henriksen's Ace Hanlon so much, that's Harrod challenges Hanlon, Ace, to the, the gunfight. And he makes an example out of, of him. One of the things that uh, Hanlon does, or uh, Ace Hanlon does, is that he does these tricks where he's shooting cards held up by little kids. He's Because his whole thing is uh, the ace of spades. And so he have aces decorating his uh, his outfit. And he has uh, he carries a deck of cards with a bunch of aces in them for everybody who who he's killed. And that seems to be a thing with uh, a lot of these gunfighters that they like scar. He's he's scarred. And one many of the scars are, are him notching his arm for everybody he has killed. So that's that's a thing. So Ace carries this deck of cards. And so he's he's doing he's doing gun tricks and whatnot. So Herod shoots in in the gun battle Herod shoots off ace's thumb his right thumb because uh he thinks that Herod had shot off a little girl's thumb and doing one of these uh card his one of these gun tricks and then he says to him well Herod says to ace yeah you well you're good with your left hand why don't you draw with your left hand because ace claimed to be good with either hand and in a second, well, you know, Herod's already in pain. He's, he's not Herod, but uh, um, Ace is already in pain because he just got his thumb shut off. Shut off. But Herod encourages him to try to draw again with his left hand since he's supposed to be so good. So when Ace tries to draw again with his left hand, Herod draws with his left hand too and shoots Ace in his left hand because I don't know what whether or not Ace was accurate with both hands, but Herod truly is ambidextrous. And so now, um, and then Herod proceeds to shoot the ground near Ace, you know, making him dance, and then finally shoots him in the head after he's tired of him, you know, all the while speechifying about why he hated Ace so much. And so other notable characters include, uh, of course, Russell Crowe. So Russell Crowe is an interesting character because while Herod, is a former outlaw that became a corrupt town leader. Russell Cole, Russell Crowe's court is uh, an outlaw that be, reformed his life to become a preacher, and he decided to turn away from violence. And this is something that Herod interprets as being fake or a liar. Like this, the same reason that he hates Ace for telling lies about shooting people and and exaggerating his exports um john herod does not accept court's turn to the priesthood he doesn't accept that court is able to turn his life around and become a preacher so it's it's not in the film but it's like you see court being dragged into town so apparently his men had found where court was burned down his church killed some of the people he was teaching and drug court to his town and to force him to participate in this quick draw event. And but first he he doesn't want to challenge Court to a gunfight at first. He he wants to basically force Court into 
a gunfight because court has renounced violence. So he has to basically encourage court to to do violence. So he does this by, you know, in a number of ways. First, he has court chained up all the time, chained up outside, chained up in the rain. And then he has his men beat up on court uh, and basically abuse him regularly. And finally, uh, forcing him into a, a gunfight. So in doing this, he he has court take uh, he for court. He purchases the cheapest gun that uh, he can that the gun shop has a, a five dollar revolver. And he gives court one bullet. So court has one chance to down his opponent or <laughs> or he or court would get killed. And it's like even, even though court has renounced violence, he doesn't want to die so that's exactly what he does he he uh he he gets he when he's forced into a gunfight you know he he draws and he fires because that one bullet and downs his opponent because he doesn't want to die himself and this is early in the contest so all he has to do is knock his opponent down he doesn't have to kill his opponent so he does that another uh great character is Leonardo DiCaprio as a kid. The kid is very charismatic. He's a ladies' man. And he has a very singular motivation of just wanting Gene Hackman's uh, John to acknowledge their relationship. So the kid will tell everybody who will listen that he is the son of John Herod. But Herod does not acknowledge this. He kind of, he tries to guide the kid in certain ways, but at the same time, he's highly critical of the kid, always calling him slow, and this infuriates the kid, and that's why the kid enters the contest. And the kid is very skilled, but he's always criticized by Herod. He's like, and and the kid just can't take this. He he wants Herod's respect, and he wants Herod to acknowledge their relationship because he believes that they're, they're father and son. But Herod does not give what it's not that he won't give him the time of day. He's just he just won't give him that respect and that acknowledgement. And then you you have uh Keith David. He's one of my favorites in this movie. So Keith David, he plays a hired gun. So he was hired by some of the town folks to try to kill Herod, because Herod is like he's an outlaw who took over a town. So he's doing evil outlaw stuff in the town. He charged the, the town high taxes, basically extortion for what he calls his protection. So, you know, cause it's him and his men and they basically got the town, uh, the townspeople scared. So, uh, Keith David, see, he's confident. He's a little bit cocky and he's, he's constantly, he's, he's laughing at danger. They, they said he was, a, he, he says he's Sergeant. He, he's a Sergeant. So he's probably a Buffalo soldier. His performance in this movie is, is just fun to watch. Kevin Conway, he plays Eugene Dredd. Dredd is just the type of person that just abuses women. He's constantly trying to hit on Sharon Stone's character, Ellen, or the lady. But, you know, she's not really giving him the time of day. But she's really disgusted by the way that he treats women to the point where she actually challenges, challenges him to a fight. And then one of my favorite characters in this movie was uh, Spotted Horse, played by Jonathan Gale. So Spotted Horse... Like I said earlier, he's just going around telling people spotted horse cannot be killed with a bullet or spotted horse can't be killed with a gun. 
I can't remember which one he says, but that that's what he says all the time. And at one point, he opens up his shirt and he's showing all of these gunshot wounds in his torso and he's telling people and i got three more in my leg and four more in my right arm and one is and i got shot in the head today it's still in there and so it's like you know he's wilding out so that's that's just awesome so naturally they have the gunfight montage where they're showing different challenges taking place and people getting knocked down and killed and it's just and it's just a beautifully shot montage uh i really like the special effects gimmicks that that sam Raimi uses that that's also fun to watch so that's i have to put that in as one of my favorite parts because there there are certain things because you know people know him for his horror people know him for his gore so there is a little bit of that gore in this movie so like when somebody gets shot like when um sergeant clay when he gets clay can't when he gets shot uh well he gets shot several times but and uh John Herod doesn't particularly like the sergeant because he knows that the sergeant is hired gun and that the sergeant was has been hired to kill him and that's when he challenged the sergeant to a duel and he told the sergeant he was going to make the sergeant an example so he you know he doesn't shoot him and kill him right away he he shoots him several times and then with the last shot he basically blows out the back of his head but you know at the when you watch the movie you basically see the head the back of the sergeant's head explode and you can see the hole that the bullet went through and through the hole you can see uh Herod standing there right so this is it's it's just it's it, it's different and it's how this western is so and and it just makes this movie there are a lot of shots like that and it it makes this movie fun to watch there's and I like there's certain elements of the story. So Ellen is there to get revenge on Herod. She is there to kill Herod because and all through the movie, they're teasing out what Herod had done to her. And you, you find out at the end of the movie, really, that Herod had ravished the town where she grew up in, where her father was the marshal of this town. And they had strung him up and they they had him stand on a chair while uh, he was strung up in the noose and her daughter was there watching and screaming and Herod was shooting out the legs of the stool that the marshal was standing on. And, you know, obviously when the stool fails to hold the marshal's weight, the marshal will end up hanging on the noose. So the little girl, uh, the marshal's daughter run out there and she, you know, begs and pleads for her father's life. And so John Herod, you know, the outlaw at this time, he's like, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you this gun and I will let you shoot the rope. If you shoot the rope and and it releases him, then we'll let you go. You know, you're free to go. So little Ellen uh, aims a gun. She thinks she's aiming it ab- uh, above her father's head in order to shoot the rope. And she misses and and she shoots her father in the head so she she was made she basically forced to kill her father by these bad men they or the bad men tricked her into killing her own father so she's lived with that trauma like her entire life and then the outlaws leave but then later on they come back we learn that they come back and they uh 
they destroy his tombstone and burn his body till there was nothing left. Because because they leave, they could have just left, but they came back to burn his body, which is just madness. So <laughs> so with um the lady is uh even though she's there to get revenge, she she has a hard time actually killing people. Like she can shoot at people, but she has a hard time actually killing people because she's still living with the trauma of accidentally killing her father. So there is actually a scene where Herod invites the lady to his residence and the lady is carrying like a really a, a tiny gun called a knuckle duster. I think it probably has maybe one or two rounds in it. And he she actually brings it there concealed in her dress and she wanted to shoot him under the table. But then she hears a sound that reminds her of the the cocking of a revolver and she's just really nervous about actually going through with it and finally she just gives up and and uh she leaves not being able to kill Herod because she just doesn't have an energy it's like she's not a killer it's not what she does she wants to kill Herod but it's not in her you know she's not the type of character that can just kill a man in cold blood she can she can shoot somebody and probably kill somebody in self-defense, but she doesn't have it to kill somebody in, in cold blood. So she runs away from there. And then she decides to just run out of town because she, she doesn't have it in her. So I, I like that. I like that. She just wasn't a stone cold killer that she's just going, going there and just shooting up everybody. Like that's not something that you would see. in uh, even though she tries to carry the demeanor of the strong and silent type, but what really what she was really doing is she was masking her trauma. And that's what I really liked about that. Uh, I also liked, uh, so I kind of glossed over court, uh, court's abuse and courts being forced to kill. So, and uh, teasing out his violent nature. And um, after like most of the gun battles, there was only like four gunfighters left. So it's um, the kid, and the kid challenges uh, Herod because he he's going to prove once and for all that he's deserving of Herod's respect. And then there's court and the lady. So first is the kid and Herod. And this is kind of messed up because Herod, I think I think Herod knows that this kid is his son. He knows that he don't want to acknowledge it, but he knows. And he tries, uh, he does everything he can to get, the kid to you know when uh he gives the, the kid every opportunity to get out of the challenge like for anybody else he would he tells them that they can't get out of the challenge once you once once you're in the final four i guess of being challenged but it's kind of hard to tell because he's always constantly changing the rules like for it's like court and the lady they have to fight each other and they're discussing how not to fight each other and then Hera comes along and says, if any, if anybody tries to leave, then you'll get gunned down. But he doesn't do this to the kid. So the, with the kid, he's like, um, he gives him every chance to back out. The kid doesn't want to back out. He thinks he's faster than Herod, but it turns out he's not. But he's, <laughs> but what I like about the kid is that um, what they show like he he's had two previous gun battles and he's won both of those. So whenever he wins a gun battle, he's like, he's so fast. He's so fast. I can't believe how fast he is. He, so he does that. But then in the final battle with Herod, he goes, 
God, that was fast. But he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Herod. Herod had shot him through the stomach. And um, and the kid dies of slow death. But as he's dying, he's reaching out to Herod in order to finally get Herod, while he's laying there dying, in order to finally get Herod to acknowledge him as a son. And Herod refuses to do it. And that was kind of messed up, he, even though he kind of. And then Herod goes on to say, you know, he's like, there's never any proof that this kid was a son. It was a son. He's a farm boy, you know. So uh, that was that that was a powerful moment in this movie. And I also wanted to point out that the townspeople were very respectful of the kid's dead body. Like after he was dead, they paid him a lot of respect. They, you know, they mourned for him at the spot because he was really popular he he was really popular with the ladies at the brothel they they all loved him and they they are that there was one in particular that we him. they they respectfully carried his body to uh you know p- to prepare for burial burial but with the other uh gunfighters that they, they they got no respect when ace was killed they just immediately start taking his boots off they taking his coats taking his car they they took everything off and when they were finished with him he was just a corpse in the underwear or when scar was killed they then you know the the other outlaws they just went and tacked his body just just started taking stuff off of him so um but with certain people when when they uh when they were killed they, they were treated with, with respect or they were protected so the kid was one of those peoples that was respected. Now, it's funny because for some reason, Crow was not respected, even though that these the townspeople don't know him and they know that he's a prisoner of Herod. The he he gets he doesn't get any respect. He goes out for his first gunfight. You know, you have little kids throwing horse dung at him and people throwing other things at him, you know, before he's getting ready for his first gun bite. And it was like, oh my goodness, they they hate him for apparently no reason, but it's probable that Herod encouraged the town folk to uh be disrespectful to Crow, to to show the least amount of courtesy possible. So um I really like the end. So the at the end of the movie they have it was supposed to be court and the lady so they're facing off against each other they're forced to face off they didn't challenge each other it is something that herod had forced on them and they're supposed to like fire when the the clock hits the hour so when they they're you know on the road they're preparing to shoot they don't want to shoot each other so when the clock hits the the hour the tower expl- you know Instead of anyone, well, actually, here's what happened: the the tower hits the hour, and nobody draws, and they just kind of stand there in the street. And this is when Herod tells his men, "If none of you draw by the time by the time I count to ten, my men is going to shoot both of you." So they're counting down. Their crow and the lady are both trying to encourage each other to draw and shoot, and neither one of them want to draw. And then finally, when Herod gets to 10, instead of anybody drawing, instead of his his men shooting anybody, the clock tower itself explodes. And then as pe- as Herod is gathering his wits, an- another building nearby explodes. And, and then another building explodes. This is not 
a gigantic town. So and they, uh, you know, Court and the lady are ostensibly trying to protect the town. And they do this by blowing up several buildings. It that's kind of a <laughs> a funny way of looking at it, but that, I guess that was the best way of getting out of the situation that they have been placed in. So, in the chaos of all these buildings exploding, uh, both Court and the lady start shooting the henchmen. So, Herod has about like four or five henchmen. They just start shooting the henchmen in in the ensuing chaos. That's when the lady challenges Herod to one final duel. So they're together and, and, you know, predictably the, the lady, uh, kills Herod, but it happens in an interesting way, even though you know that she's going to kill Herod, it, it would have been a really weird movie if she hadn't, but it's, it's this particular gunfight that she has with him. It happens because everything is already chaotic. So there's a lot of running around and stuff. So she, she kills Herod and basically rides out of town without the prize money, which is respectful of the town because she did blow up many of the buildings she she blew up the brothels she blew up this other building she blew up the clock tower so yeah the least she could do was to leave the prize money so the town could be rebuilt so uh and then uh she you know before she leaves she tosses um she tosses court her father's marshal badge you know because she carries that with her you know as far as motivation to get her vengeance on so she tosses it to court uh, to imply that he's the new uh, leader of the town. So, yeah, I loved it. Uh, also, I want to shout out to the wardrobe department because the costumes on that joint was fantastic. I just love the the costumes, especially like uh, Gene Hackman's wardrobe was fascinating. It was like he was like when you expect a gunfight, I don't know, maybe you don't wear your best clothes. Maybe you don't wear your Sunday best, but Herod wore his Sunday best. He was like he was dressing up to go to church when he went to a gunfight. Um, and so that that was great. The uh the the over the uh, I, I wouldn't say it's over the top acting, but it's just it's just good acting, especially especially from Eugene Hackman, even though he's basically replaying a character, it it's uh he's just so good at uh particular characters. So in this version, he's um like there's that scene when he has the lady over at his place and they're, you know, it's kind of like a date. So he's, he's eating an apple, but he's eating the apple sinisterly. You know, if you could possibly do that, if you can imagine somebody eating apple sinister, like in a sinister manner that he he's able to accomplish that. I think it helps that he's carving the, uh, he's carving the apple with a knife. Like first he's using the knife to peel the apple and then he uses the knife to, you know, slice pieces of the apple off. I think that helps to, with the sinister nature of the way he was eating the apple instead of just biting into it. That, I think that really helps a lot. And then there is this part in the movie where he gives a speech about being the leader of the town. Like this is my town, right? So that, that was also, you know, that was an, an excellent monologue from, from Gene Hackman. And also the, like I said, this is one of my favorite roles that Lance Henriksen did. And, um, and I felt like, uh, Sharon Stone was effective as a mean and mean spirited, uh, gunfighter or, uh, she's an ostensible gunfighter. It's like, she wants to put on a facade of a gunfighter, but she's not actually a gunfighter. So that, 
that worked out really well. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is just naturally charismatic, and Russell Crowe was like fascinating. His, I felt like his accent, his American accent, was flawless. Like I didn't know when I first watched the movie that he was Australian. It, it took me a while to even realize that him in this movie. And then when I seen Russell Crowe in later movies, I didn't realize that was the same person. So uh, he did a bang up job in in, in this movie. So th- this movie I thought was a lot of fun. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. Even though I spoil it for you, well, you know it's people might say that this is predictable, so you're fine. So you're fine. <laughs> so uh, that's it for our favorite parts, and now we're going to talk about the trivia. All right, we are here for some trivia. And the trivia was provided by IMDb. And one of the main things about this movie, uh, Sharon Stone, she is one of the producers. So, and she earned that credit because, well, I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. But first I'll talk about her leather jacket. So Sharon Stone's leather jacket is the real deal. It's over a hundred years old and it's from a Western museum. There is a scene where Gene Hackman lightly slaps Sharon Stone. It wasn't scripted, and Stone's reaction is real. Like, she is, she does have this kind of shocked and angry look on her face. And what I meant by her being a producer, she, um, she was so insistent that Leonardo DiCaprio appear in the film that she paid his salary personally like the studio was like well like if you want this because they didn't want an unknown kid for some reason for some reason they wanted somebody with more uh who was more known i guess because there were a lot of people that were in the movie already that was well known like gene hackman and lance henrickson and and some others uh pat hangle so i guess they wanted somebody known but she had seen him in another movie and so she really wanted him in it and she also got to choose the director and she also got to choose uh russell crowe they they were unsure about Russell Crowe. This would have been this um because nobody really knew him. I'll mention that later on. But she really wanted him in the movie. So Sharon Stone bought the horse Magic after the movie was over. I guess Magic is the name of the horse that she rode in the movie. She said, I've been riding all my life, but never on such a fine horse as this. And what's amazing is that a lot of actors have to retrain in order to ride horses, but apparently that she was all about it. She was all about the horse riding. So that, and she looked very natural. I, I hadn't even thought about how natural she looked in the horse. I just take it for granted that people in Westerns are riding horses. It never even th- occurred to me that this is not a normal thing that people do. And most people have to be, have to be taught to ride horses for movies and films and TV shows. But she was just, that's what she did. That, that, that was her thing. So that's why she looked so natural doing it. Sharon Stone handpicked Russell Crowe to be in this film. The studio was initially unsure about this choice because Crowe was a complete unknown to the American audience as this was his first American feature. According to the Evil Dead Companion, Sharon Stone was given a lengthy list of directors that had been approved to direct this film so she could choose the directors she thought would work. She sent back a list with a single name, Sam Raimi, when asked why she chose Raimi, she said it was because she liked Army of Darkness from 1992, among Raimi's other works. 
Sharon Stone named Russell Crowe her favorite on-screen kisser. She didn't feel the same about Leonardo DiCaprio saying it was about as sexy as kissing my arm. Because there was a scene where she kind of grabs him by the head and kisses him on the lips. But apparently, and it looked really good on film, but apparently she did not enjoy it. All of the actors on the set and in the gunfight scenes were instructed in the art of the quick draw by a stunt coordinator. Due to his limited time on screen, Gene Hackman had the most opportunity to prepare his quick draw and as a result was the fastest actor on the set. I would think that he's been doing this the whole time, but you know, and all the Westerns that he's been in, but, and, and not only Westerns, but you know, his, um, whenever he's on a, an action movie or whatever, but I, I guess, um, quick draw is a very peculiar skill that, uh, you, you just don't get a chance to learn any place else. Bruce Campbell had a cameo appearance during a wedding scene, but the scene was cut. Campbell says Sam Raimi created this scene for a specific reason of giving Pat Hingle something more substantial to do and was never intended to be in the movie in the first place. Campbell, who also visiting this set on on his day off when Raimi drafted him to play a Skid Row character in several background shots, although all of Campbell's appearances ended up on the cutting room floor, he is still listed high up in the credits. Raimi said that over the years that this film was an homage to the late Sergio Leone and the spaghetti westerns he directed, both visually and production-wise, but still containing Raimi's own visual and eclectic style. Lance Henriksen loved playing the role of Ace Hanlon. I felt like I was that guy. My wife used to walk on the set and say, my heart be still. Sam Raimi's original ending didn't work, so he went to Sony Pictures and asked for a writer to fix it. The studio suggested Joss Whedon, who saw the movie and fixed the ending for Raimi in one afternoon. All the guns in the film are authentic for 1878. Many are guns that you don't normally see in westerns. A sex scene between Ellen and Court was shot, but Sharon Stone and director Sam Raimi decided that It wasn't a necessary part of the story. The scene was not included in the American release of the film, but the international version does. I find that interesting because, yeah, in an international version, any excuse for a sex scene, but in this American version, in this instance, I agree that it it wouldn't make sense. And I think that, you know, this was in the 90s, so it was like in the 80s. If this movie was made in the 80s, it would still be a sex scene in there because you have to have it. In the 80s, it seemed like it was a prerequisite for most movies, but I think in the 90s, they were just started to grow out of the need to have, uh, you know, unnecessary sex scenes. When Horace gives his speech on the competition rules before kids first fight, he mentions not to draw until they hear the sound of the first time of the town clock. The chime was never heard, only the sound when the minute arm moved to the 12th position i i guess that's what herod meant by the the chime i guess that's what he was referring to because everybody in town seemed to know or everybody in the competition seemed seemed to know that that sound that the minute hand made when it hit the 12 o'clock position that that was when they fired on jonathan gill is a lakota native american after an older area 
I'm sorry, after an older extra passed away in a set, Gil held a traditional Lakota ceremony to honor him. Horace the bartender points to a chest full of money announcing that there is a prize for the contest. All right, so this is where I get into the prize that the lady left behind so that the town, I, I don't know if she did it because she wanted the town to rebuild itself after she done blew up half of the town or it's because she really only wanted to kill the man who killed her father. She, she got her vengeance, so she didn't need anything else. I don't know why she left the money behind, but the amount that was offered as a prize is $123,000. The U.S. dollar had an average inflation rate of 2.3% per year between 1880 and 2016. $123,000 in the year 1880 is worth $3,220,357.06 in 2021, which is fascinating. Sharon Stone's leather pants were so tight that she was unable to sit down in a chair. Also, she fired her standing because she was getting more attention from the crew than Stone was. So that's kind of a weird reason to fire your standing. Uh, that's just, why would you want that attention? And when I think about it, did I, I think there was only one scene really where she's actually sitting down. Um, but most of the time she wasn't. And then when she is sitting down, you don't really see what she's wearing. But why, why would you wear leather pants that tight? The title, The Quick and the Dead, comes from the King James translation of the Bible. 1 Peter 4, 5, which admonishes the believer from behaving like pagans. Quote, who shall give account to him, in brackets, Christ, that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Unquote. The phrase became better known in the English as part of the Apostles' Creed, a Christian doctrine which appears to date back, at least in partial form, to the second century. The Creed, as translated in the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England, states that Christ, quote, ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. In both cases, the word quick is a more archaic use, meaning living. In modern parlance, the quick and the quick of the fingernails is a rare instance of the older meaning. However, the movie title clearly plays off the double meaning in that there are two kinds of gunslingers, quick meaning both fast and alive, and dead. So that's it for the trivia. Hope you learned something. If I miss anything. Or if there's a favorite part that you have in a movie, why don't you hit me up on the socials and let me know about it. But right now, we're going to head over to see what the critics thought. All right. And now we're going to see what the critics thought. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Critics gave it 82%. Audience gave it a 76%. On IMDb Reviews, it received 6.8 out of 10. Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly, he wrote, The plot of this low-camp revenge thriller is a little more than an excuse to line up one badass cowboy or girl opposite another and let the eyeball-to-eyeball fireworks fly. I mean, he's not wrong. I guess he wanted something more, but I, th I thought there was 
some substance. Some I th- I thought there was more substance to this movie uh, apparently than he did. Rob Vo from Flipside Movie Emporium wrote, "Raimi's gimmickly but endlessly inventive direction gives it plenty of gas, and the excellent cast takes it the rest of the way." And he is right. I agree with Rob one hundred percent. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone wrote. What Rami can't find is a sinner. He hankers for us to giggle at the brutal archetypes he's parroting and to warn to them too. It won't wash, partner. Um, I don't know. I, I really didn't see this as a parody. And yeah, there were parts that I, that I thought were very amusing, but uh, I don't think he was going for this as a comedy. Janet Maslin from the New York, New York Times wrote, Mr. Raimi is limited by a sketchy mentality, which means his jokes tend to be overlong before his films end. But he tastes for his taste for visual mischief and crazy, ill-advised homage can still make for a sly, sporadic fun. So yeah, uh, um, yeah, this I I I think I agree with this. Uh, I I don't agree that uh, he's limited by a sketch mentality. Um, I, th- I guess because the gunfights themselves kind of play out as like tiny stories or there are scenes that almost play out as tiny stories, but I don't, I don't really see it as sketch mentality. I just think they're really, uh, fun scenes. Kenneth Turin from Los Angeles Times wrote, really dull. It is not noticeably compelling either. And as the derivative offshoot of a derivative genre it inevitably runs out of energy well before any of the its hot shots run out of bullets. I strongly disagree with that. I, I was thrilled the entire time. Finally, Matt Board from I'm sorry, Matt Ford from BBC.com wrote, The whole film has tremendous visual style and the frequent outbursts of violence are delivered with a clever and often hilarious use of special effects. That is accurate. To the core. Finally, The Quick and the Dead, as of this recording, is available for purchase at your favorite streaming service. That's it for today. Please join us next week with our special guest, John DeGregrio from the Movie Lovers Unite podcast. We will be talking about a classic and slightly problematic movie, Short Circuit. Follow us on Twitter or TikTok at Backlick Cinema or on Facebook or Instagram at Backlick Cinema Podcast for updates. Don't forget that you can contact us with any questions, comments, or suggestions at fanmail at backlickcinema.com. One last time, if you like the show, then please help us grow. To do this, you can subscribe to, to the show, rate us, or write a review on Spotify, spotchaser.com, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie from yesteryear with your family, hug your loved ones, and if you're going to be anything, be outstanding and be quick.